Good morning. Welcome to today. And we are joined by none other than Dr. 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 Friday, otherwise known as Dr. Christmas, also known as the Naked Scientist. Morning, Keno. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good. And do you know what? I'm turning up for class. I've done my homework as well. If you recall, <laughs> last week, Jen said, I think it was Jen said, if everyone on Earth took a swim all at the same time, what would it do to sea level rise? And I said, I'm going to speculate that it would produce a tiny, absolutely excruciatingly tiny difference in sea level. But in order to be absolutely sure, I'm going to go away and do the calculation. And, and whenever I do these sorts of things, I also do the safety net of asking on the Naked Scientist discussion forum because there are some very bright people on our discussion forum and I always throw these things in there as well and ask them. And then I know that I've got a reasonable chance of having had it peer-reviewed by good people and I won't make a mistake. Mm. So I'm pleased to say my suggestion was correct and uh, and it is a tiny difference, but here's how you actually do the calculation. And I acknowledge the efforts of Bored Chemist, who's our forum user who first came up with the solution. If we look at Antarctica as an example, since the 1990s, Antarctica has lost four trillion tons of ice. And that's because of global warming and ice melt. This has contributed to a rise in global sea level of 20 centimetres or so. Now, if we assume that the Earth's population is 10 billion, that's a bit of an overestimate, but it makes the numbers easy, and we assume that the average person weighs 50 kilo, then actually that's about 500 million tonnes worth of people on Earth. So if you assume that people are about the same density as water, which they are, when we chuck a person in water and we go for a swim, we sort of float, sort of try and sink. So we're about the same density as water. So therefore, that's about 500 million tonnes of water in terms of people on Earth. Then you can say, well, 500 million tonnes of people over 4 trillion tonnes of ice, that's one eight thousandth. So one eight thousandth of the 20 to 25 centimetres of sea level rise that Antarctica has caused is 2.5 microns. In other words, about one five hundredth of a millimetre. So if all the people on Earth, Gen, went for a swim, as I speculated, and they were all in the water, all at the same time, displacing their mass in terms of water, because of the vastness of the oceans, we would still only push up sea level by about one five hundredth of one millimetre because of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a lot of work that went into that one. But it was a brilliant thorough, thorough answer, though. It's important to be no, right, indeed. isn't it? So thank you, board chemist, no, as well, who, who helped me out with the calculation. I'm very grateful. That is absolutely phenomenal. So you are listening to Dr. Chris Smith. What else have you guys been up to this week? I keep asking you that, and it's normally very much COVID-related. Um, have you had any deviations from that? Well, it, it actually usually is coronaviruses, isn't it? Because I mean, it's just dominating yep. the world. It's dominating the news agenda. Mm. It's dominating the scientific and medical sure. agenda. And, you know, I'm active in all those spaces. Um, the the things that are sort of moving this week, we've, we've had the slight setback with a, st a story that's very relevant to South Africa. And that's what uh, is going on with the Oxford University slash AstraZeneca vaccine. This is AZD1222, which is the name of the vaccine, which is uh, being tested in the UK. But also because numbers of cases in the UK were too low for the trial to prove con um, convincingly whether or not the vaccine worked, uh, it was also repeated across Brazil 
and in South Africa, countries where there was at the time a higher prevalence, still is a higher prevalence of the disease. Earlier in the week, there was a bit of an abrupt halt called on that trial because a person who received the vaccine has developed a condition called transverse myelitis. This is where you have inflammation and swelling in the spinal cord. And as a cautionary procedure, the trial has been temporarily halted while investigations are carried out. But we don't know that the vaccine caused this person to have this side effect. We just know that the person had a vaccine. They may be in the placebo, they may be in the treatment arm, and they then got this side effect. So it's important to investigate, to rule out whether or not the vaccine's doing this, whether this is an acceptable side effect, how likely the risk is therefore to occur in other people. Very important to find this out very early on in this stage, because if we're going to take this vaccine and deploy it across potentially billions of people, if this sort of side effect crops up with a reasonable frequency, it could potentially impact on millions, and we wouldn't want that. So it's very important to do this carefully, and that's always been the way that... Um, that actually this has been approached. People are saying we are trying to do this quickly, but we're not going to shortcut the safety because of that. So uh, yep. in some respects, I'm kind of reassured that they've said this has happened. We're stopping things temporarily. We're going to check everything's OK and then resume. This happens in all trials. All trials, drugs have side effects. There is no drug that doesn't have side effects. But that was the other thing that was that was getting a lot of headlines earlier this week and I think because it's so important for everybody because it's one way in which we're going to be able to protect people in the population who are otherwise going to be quite at risk from coronavirus infection. Absolutely, safe, the safeguards etc working. Let's go straight to those calls. Gary in Woodstock. Hi Gary. Good morning there. Good morning Chris. I would like to ask a question about viruses. All the viruses around the world that have passed on again, what causes a virus to activate itself and deactivate, and deactivate itself. Like, for example, of HRV, man has been having, I don't have to put it, put it there, but sex over the centuries. And how is it it took so long for it to activate itself? That is all I can hear on the radio. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that Hi, one, Gary. Gary. Interesting question. Uh, the example of HIV is is good one. And this is an example of what we call an emerging infection. We can put a date on when HIV first appeared in the human population. It's sometime around the beginning of the 1900s, 1900 to 1920. How do we know that? We know that because the virus makes genetic spelling mistakes. These are called mutations whenever the virus copies itself and when it passes from one person to the next to the next. So if we look at virus samples today and we look at virus samples from, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we can compare how much the virus has changed over time and this tells us the rate at which the virus changes in t in over time and this is what's called the genetic clock. And if you know how fast the virus is changing, we know that this virus, HIV, came from chimpanzees. Its next closest relative is a virus called SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency virus. And therefore, we postulate that a chimpanzee virus, SIV, jumped the species barrier into people and became HIV. So if we ask, how fast is HIV changing? Therefore, how many years would it take from the HIV we have today to get back to a form of SIV that's, that's the same as HIV? And when you do that calculation, it's about 100 years ago. And that's how long we've had HIV in the population. Why did it suddenly emerge 100 years ago? This probably happened for a range of factors, a range of reasons, but they all really come down to the same reasons time and time again whenever you see any kind of emerging infection like this. 
and they fall into three categories. Either something changes in the pathogen, the thing that causes disease, abruptly, something changes in the host, the person who's going to catch the disease, or something changes in the environment. And usually it's a combination of the three. And if we look at HIV, we look at Ebola, we look at dengue virus, we look at Zika virus, these are all emerging infections that have happened within the lifetimes of many of us. The reason the driver is usually number one on the list is human population. And the human population of Earth has dramatically increased. And in areas where you get big outbreaks, it's usually coincident with big increases in population and urbanisation. And what happens is that people come, they build houses, they build roads, and they therefore have large numbers of people who can catch something. They've often invaded virgin territory where there's wildlife that have the infection. And if you bring big numbers of people who are very mobile and very well connected into close proximity with the natural world, you massively increase the chances that a virus harboured by a natural wildlife situation will jump into and become able to circulate in the human population. And this keeps on, this is history repeating itself. And why did the coronavirus jump out of people, uh, out, of, out of bats, we think, and into people in China? Again, it's an increase in population, urbanisation and, and deforestation. People moving into previously wild areas where the animals that harbour these agents live naturally and they're in close proximity to people and the livestock that we keep and this helps to jump the species barrier and introduce the infection into us humans. And so that's why people are very concerned. Having looked at what's happened in China, there was a very big population mm. explosion in China um, in previous decades, and that has increased the chances of things like coronaviruses jumping out of bats and into people. The thing we're looking at now is that the African continent is predicted to have the next big population boom. Uh, the population of the African continent may double probably realistically will double within coming decades. That means there will be a lot more of these contacts between human groups and animal groups, and as a result, the chances of jumps like this happening will be dramatically mm. increased. And, and that's what, something we have to keep an eye on. So the answer to the question in one sentence is, it took so long for these things to happen because there weren't this number of humans on Earth uh, invading wildlife habitats in the past, and now there are. I just want to acknowledge a voice note I received from someone earlier very quickly. Someone who apparently, who I, I believe, differs with you. Chris, let's take a, let's take a listen. Kino, I love the naked scientist explanation for the molten ice question. Um, my only consideration that I think that the board chemist might have missed out on is that Antarctica at baseline is ice and floats on top of the water, so therefore displacing water and causing some sort of sea level rise, whereas humans at baseline aren't all in the water at the same time. So therefore I think we would make a bit more than one eight thousand, maybe one seven thousand of a <laughs> uh, of the sea rise because of the fact that they, we are all going to be displacing all of our mass at once, whereas Antarctica, part of its mass is always moving water out at any given time. Sounds like a uni student to me. So, um, um, Chris? No, board chemist is right, I'm afraid, and he's chosen Antarctica carefully and for a reason. And this is because unlike the North Pole and the Arctic Circle, where the ice is floating in the ocean, Antarctica is a landmass. It is a continent. Therefore, the ice on Antarctica is sitting out of the water, and when it melts, it flows into the water. 
and therefore that ice is not displacing any water until it gets into the water as water. So actually he is he's right. Antarctica is not at the moment floating. It is not displacing any water. So I'm afraid that uh, you are not correct in your challenge, but thank you for raising the point because it's an interesting talking point. One other thing to consider is that Antarctica will have caused a slight increase in sea level rise for another reason when the ice goes and that is that there is so much mass concentrated on the Antarctic landmass because of this ice that it's gravitationally active any mass is gravitationally active but there's so much mass on Antarctica that it pulls the water down towards the South Pole a bit more than it would normally do so there's a bulge of water around Antarctica attracted there by the gravitational effect of the ice and when you melt the ice you don't just top up the oceans with the water that melts you also lose some of the gravitational effect and therefore that water that's currently heaped up around Antarctica redistributes a bit farther afield so there are two effects here and if Antarctica goes all together then that bulge will redistribute everywhere and there is enough water locked up in Antarctica and the other ice sheets to flood the vast majority of the world's most important cities. Okay, and moving on to Mohammed in Grossi Park. Good morning, sir. Hi, Dr. Chris. Good morning, Keith. How Hello. are you? Always good, sir. Thanks. Uh, yes, a very short question, Doc. Um, I've always wondered, last night here in Cape Town, the um, uh, minimum temperature was 13 degrees uh, Celsius. If it had to be 13 degrees Celsius today, it would have been extremely cold. But we're, during the night, it's warmish. Why? <laughs> well, I think there's a range of reasons for this. I mean, where are you at night? Uh, you I, are, sorry, I listen on the radio. You okay? are, you are indoors at night time, tucked up in bed. Oh, sorry. Oof, dear, sorry oh, dear. about that, Chris. Sorry. Um, no, just, where are you at night time? So, you're at home, you're tucked up in bed, and the temperature falls to 13, but you don't notice because you're asleep. And when you're asleep, your body temperature drops anyway because our metabolism turns down. We don't want to have our metabolism thundering away at night, burning off calories, getting us ready for action that we're not going to take. So the body temperature drops at night and you are tucked up in bed, you are asleep, you don't notice what the temperature is doing. But during the daytime when we are active and we're going about our business, we do notice. So I think part of this is going to be a psychological effect uh, over anything over uh, in terms of, of why that would have happened, to be honest with you. I don't think there's any other reason why there's a difference between a temperature at night and a temperature in the daytime. A temperature is a temperature. Excellent. Moving on to another question. This time, Sean's in Cape Town. Hi there. How are you doing, Sean? So if I look at World Onita, they say that so far this year, there's been 41 million deaths worldwide. If I look at the WHO, the number of casualties from directly related to coronavirus looks like it's now approaching one million. So my question is, why has the world come to a standstill on the basis of one fortieth of normal deaths that take place every year? And are we not overreacting to this pandemic? There are a number of things to consider here. On the one hand, you could say, well, about a million deaths is a million deaths, and, and that's a tragedy, however you look at it. But on the other hand, measles last year killed about 150,000 people around the world. There were 10 million cases of that, and there's a vaccine against measles. Flu kills up to a million people every year around the world, and there's a vaccine for that. So why have we ended up in a position where we have an infection, 
which is leading to loss of life, but not on the same scale as things that routinely affect us every year, which, which we've kind of learned to live with. Why this difference in reaction? And at the moment, I don't have a simple answer for you. I think that at the beginning of all of this, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We saw very dramatic images from various countries where there were intensive care units overflowing, there were te- there were bodies piling up in morgues, because we assumed that the death rate would be uniform across the age spectrum, and it turns out that in fact this is not an equal opportunities virus, that it picks on older people, it picks on men, and it picks on people who have pre-existing health conditions. They're much more vulnerable. But we've learned that along the way. And in getting to this point of knowledge, we actually had to put in place many of the measures to protect everybody until we knew what we were protecting everybody from. Now we're in a position where we do know a lot more and people are beginning to ask the question, well, since we know who the most vulnerable people are, should we not begin to move to a situation where since they constitute a very tiny minority of the population, what we need to do is to work out how we protect these people from infection so that they don't catch it. And in the meantime, everyone else aware of the potential risks is allowed to go about their business as normal. And in the absence of a vaccine at the moment, the best thing we can do to protect those people is to do what we're doing because we can't at the moment stop those people from potentially coming into contact with people who have it and could give it to them and end up causing them to lose their life. But longer term, if we can come up with a vaccine, it may be necessary only to protect those older people or those pre-existing unwell people. And then everyone else can say, well, I'll catch this virus and it won't really make much of a difference to me because the mortality rate across the whole population is about 0.64%. And the flu mortality rate in a bad year is about 0.1%. So it's about five times worse than flu, but that's across the whole population, including older people and more vulnerable individuals. If you look down at the young end of the age spectrum, in the under 50 age spectrum, the chances of of, um, walking out of your door and being run over or having a car accident and that claiming your life are much higher than than if uh, coronavirus afflicted you. So people are beginning to ask these questions and I think they're probably in the absence of a vaccine if we don't get vaccination soon people are going to say well we have to begin to make some of these sorts of tough choices. Chris thank you for that one. Let's go to Agnes in Stranfontein. Hi. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. I just want to ask a question. No, I was COVID positive in June. Yeah. I was very very sick. I was isolated. But Three months later, I can't smell, I can't taste. I'm still shortness of breath, still joints, pain joints. I had an attack yesterday that I had to go for another test, which came out negative. I feel scared. I don't know what to do Mm. now. It sounds to me like you, you may well have what people are dubbing long COVID. And this is a manifestation in some people who catch this, and it uh, actually occurs across the age spectrum. So young people as well as older people can get this. And people have what they think is a pretty trivial infection with coronavirus at the time. But then when they expect to feel better, it just grumbles on and on and on. And the manifestations include things like feeling very tired, so profound fatigue, muscle aches and pains, headaches, shortness of breath, heart problems in some people, other aches and pains, and and perhaps even intestinal disturbance in some people. 
when we test these people, we don't find any evidence of virus in them at the time. What we think has happened is that the virus has come, had a very violent party with your immune system, and then exited the premises, leaving this mess behind, and the immune system remains in a state of inflammation and continues to irritate organs throughout the body. And those organs range from the brain and heart through to the kidneys, liver and your muscles and joints. And this is what people are dubbing long COVID. We don't know why some people get this manifestation. We don't know how long this is going to go on for, but it certainly can in some people be months, although it doesn't seem to be relentless because some people are now saying having had this, they are beginning to feel a lot better. So uh, you may well fall into the category of someone with long COVID. And if you want to learn more about this, we actually made a, a full Naked Scientist episode a few weeks ago and we called it Sick of COVID, The Long Haul. If you go to nakedscientist.com slash podcasts, you'll find that episode there. It's got a, a black and white picture at the top and a, and a man holding his hands to his face, looking frustrated because he's got long COVID. And we talk to, to patients, we talk to doctors who are looking after those patients and immune experts. And, and it does give you a very clear picture of our understanding at the moment of what we think long COVID is. Excellent. Thanks for the question, Angus. And a, a quick one here about the heart. Kino, hi. I'd, I'd like to know, um, could you perhaps maybe share how... Uh, the, the heart started beating. That's an interesting question. Thanks, Grant. I can, I can tell you, Chris, and Chris wasn't around at the time. But <laughs> <laughs> Chris. Yeah, well, what, what we know about this is that um, the heart is made of specialised cells that are muscle cells that very early on in the development of an organism, a group of muscle cells form in one place and they organise themselves into a tube. Those muscle cells have their own inbuilt pacemaker. In other words, by allowing positively charged sodium to leak into the cell and potassium to leak out of the cell in the right sorts of ways, so the membrane fires what we call an action potential, and this causes the cell to beat. And you can, you can watch these cells do this in the dish, and they naturally have their own beating rhythm. And as the heart evolved, initially it started off as a tube of these muscular cells which would squeeze things along a bit like your intestines do. Over time, evolution endowed this just single tube that squeezed from one end and pushed blood out the other end. It turned into a series of curves in order to form a heart with four chambers and the four chambers are basically that tube divided up into four separate chambers. And uh, so basically you bring together tissues that naturally want to beat with a tubular architecture and then that tubular architecture rearranges itself in such a way that you can break it up into chambers to achieve optimal pumping of the heart depending upon what sort of organism you are but uh, it's it's a very clever trick of physiology it works very similar to other muscles and nerve cells and if you isolate those heart cells you can literally watch them beating in front of you in the dish they just want to do it of their own accord it's really interesting to if you see this especially in a developing organism or developing human infant for example amazing absolutely chris thank you so much for that pleasure have a fab fabulous weekend and looking forward to next friday Dr. no chris homework Smith. this week no indeed you got it spot on 100% well done, young man. Cheers, <laughs> then. Take care. Cheers. Have a good one. 
on capetalk.co.za on the app on DSTV channel 885 and across the city on 567 AM join the conversation you're with Cape Talk you're with Cape Talk